Welcome to another episode of Saints Edified. I'm your host Arturo and I want to thank you once again for tuning in. Today I have a special guest on and that's Pastor Joel Ellis. I had the privilege of interviewing him a couple days ago and he also agreed to help me out on this episode of, uh, of, of the podcast and we're on part five now of the scripture is series and basically if you, if you guys are new to the podcast we're we're covering in six episodes what scripture is and obviously that's not enough but um i'm trying i'm trying to do it in a way that's easy to understand and it's helpful for those who just want to learn more about scripture so as a guide we're using the westminster confession of faith simply as a guide I mean, and, and and we're using it just to kind of help us navigate through the scriptures on these biblical truths and in this episode we cover section seven and eight of chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And again, Pastor Joel, he agreed to help me out on this. So that's what we did this time around. Um, if you guys want to, if you guys want to listen to the, or if you guys want to watch the whole interview, because it, 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 because it is a, it is a video recording. Um, if you guys want to watch the full video, just go to our YouTube page, the Saint Edified YouTube page, you can watch it on there. Please subscribe. And also too, if you guys find that this ministry has been helpful in any kind of way, consider being a Patreon member at, uh, at patreon.com slash edified and any monthly contribution helps a lot and, is, and i'm very very thankful for those who, who have given in the past already so i don't want to take up too much of your time guys uh please enjoy um again if you guys have any questions do not hesitate to reach out to me at all uh you can go to the saints edified website or the facebook page or just find me on facebook and i'll be more than happy to talk to you okay all right guys enjoy uh, within 30 minutes we'll sure. see okay. i don't know but um okay so uh let me see all right, brother. So do you mind, um, you have a better reading voice than I do. So <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Would you mind reading, uh, if you have it in front of you, uh, sections seven and eight of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Certainly. So chapter one, article seven says, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Article 8 says, The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. As, so as, in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that, the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Thanks, man. appreciate that. Now, uh, so we'll, we'll first start with section 7, or article 7, and, and we'll kind of just break it down there. Um, by the way, feel free to say anything you want. Um, I, I, I know you studied this already. So, uh, but so I, I really want to, I like to focus on that first part uh, where it says, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place and opened in some place of scripture or others. And uh, basically what, it's, what, the, what the confession is saying is that 
scripture could be hard to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there could be some tough places, but for those things that are essential, mm-hmm. faith are pretty clear. That's right. You know, and uh, so, so do you mind explaining a little bit more on what are the essentials and non-essentials of the faith? Sure, sure. Yeah, so here we're dealing with something that theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture. Uh, it's just the adequate clearness of the doctrines of the faith that are necessary for salvation. So what would that include? It would, it would include ideas like man's sinfulness, uh, like the glory of God and the centrality of the glory of God in all things, uh, the person and natures of Christ, even though we would think about that being a fairly complex or sophisticated theological doctrine, uh, the idea that Jesus is both God and man is very clearly set forth in Scripture. Uh, we don't have to have a mechanical understanding of the virgin birth, of the hypostatic union, and these kinds of things, uh, to know that Jesus is both God and man, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, to know that he died on the cross for our sins, to know that he rose the third day, that he ascended and is enthroned at the right hand of God. Those are the essential things. And then, uh, you know, the nature of faith, how to lay hold of Christ, as it were, who has first laid hold of us. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, you know, the basic elements of the Christian life. What does it mean to live by faith? What does it mean to love God and as an act of loving God to love other people? Th- those are the kinds of things that the confession has in mind here when it's talking about these necessary things are sufficiently clear and, uh, you know, uh, propounded uh, throughout Scripture. In other words, we can read them in many places. This doesn't depend upon uh, one obscure reference in a particular book. It's something that all of Scripture testifies to. Right, right. Amen. Also, too, I guess what, what quickly comes to mind is when Peter wrote how there, there were some false teachers getting some of the harder things to understand, right? That's right. Um, that Paul wrote. And, and but, but what we're saying, what the confession is saying is that, yeah, there are some difficult things, but things that pertain to salvation, the gospel and the Godhead, those are very clear. And, and it's an important point for you know, people to realize we've got to major in what God deems major. And, mm-hmm. and whenever you have, there, there's something very appealing about teaching that majors in the minors that yeah. suggests that there are these secrets or that there are these uh, points of doctrine that most of the Christian world has overlooked. And you're being kind of initiated into almost this elite group When you find a church or a ministry that is majoring in the minors in that way, they have this little hobby and all of their focus is there. You want to stay away from that. You want, you want to be part of a church. You want to be sitting under the teaching of the word where the gospel is at the center. Christ is clearly being presented in every lesson, every day. And uh, not to say that we don't look at the other parts of scripture. I mean, I'm preaching through the minor prophets right now. So obviously uh, some of those, difficult parts of scripture we need to deal with as well. But even there, the centrality of Christ, the centrality of the glory of God, um, the necessity of God's grace, these are the ideas that need to be coming through all the time. Right, right. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So um, I I guess another favorite part of mine in this this section is when it talks about those who are learned and unlearned, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know there's historical significance to that. Yes. On, on why on why they're including that in there, yes. Um, so so, do you mind just quickly explaining, like why why they had it? I mean, they probably could have avoided that, but they put it in there for a reason. So sure, 
Yeah, I mean, you've got to think about the fact that in the Reformation, you have, you know, part of what necessitates the Reformation is this exaggerated clergy-laity distinction within the Roman tradition, uh, where the Bible does not belong to the people of God, mm. and that people, people, you know, the average churchgoer cannot be trusted to read the scriptures with understanding. You, you simply need to leave it to the priests uh, to interact with the Bible, and then they'll tell you what you need to know. Um, and, and really, uh, Christianity has become just rote performance uh, in many places. When Luther and others begin reading the scriptures in the original languages, going back before the Vulgate, encountering the New Testament in Greek, encountering the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, God just sets their hearts on fire, and uh, they realize that this book is not for just the educated elite. It's not just for this clerical order that the Bible—I I mean, look at the languages that God used to originally inspire Scripture. Um, the Greek of the New Testament is common Greek. It's not literary Greek. If any of your audience has studied Attic Greek, mm. this is not— the sophisticated Greek of the poets and philosophers in ancient Greece. The Greek that the New Testament is written in is the kind of Greek that was spoken by second language Greek speakers in the world. Uh, you know, when I try to speak some language other than English, it's not very great. You know, it's, it's, it's very rudimentary and it's a little broken and I make grammatical errors and, you know, because I'm, I'm not a native speaker. That's the kind of Greek that you see in the New mm. Testament. Not to say that it's, that it's full of errors, but to say it's the common language of the people. It's yeah. not just for academicians and intellectuals. And so one of the things that the Westminster divines, the theologians that write this document are trying to emphasize is that even though these men were highly educated, conversant in multiple languages, very well studied in the things of God, you don't have to be a trained theologian. You don't have to be able to read Hebrew and Greek. Uh, you don't have to have uh, you know, a devotion to the study of systematic theology to be able to understand what you need to understand from the Word of God. You simply need a Bible, and you need to read it uh, with faith, with humility, with reverence, relying upon the Holy Spirit of God who provides the understanding. So, you know, there's a lot more that we could probably say there, oh, yeah, but that's yeah. some of the historical background that is behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and th th they 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 clarify even more on how that's possible, right? It says in a due use of the ordinary means. That's right. And um, and that right there, I mean. Uh, I'm trying to remember if I actually covered that part in my in my studies uh, years mm -hmm. ago. I think I, I think I kind of missed that. I think I looked over that part. Yeah. But man, that's such an important part. <laughs> it's <laughs> huge. No, so it's can you explain huge. about that? What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we frequently say in our church is that there are ditches on both sides of the road. And what that means is simply that you can fall into error by going to either extreme. Okay, so on the one hand, you've got the Westminster Confession affirming correctly that the Word of God belongs to the people of God, and you don't have to be an intellectual or an elitist to be able to access that. On the other hand, there is a place for pastors and teachers in the church. There is a place for an ordained ministry of the Word. Uh, what you see in you know, uh, the, the Roman tradition leading up to the, to the Reformation is where the Word of God is withheld from the people of God. By contrast, what you see in a lot of hyper-fundamentalism uh, or kind of low evangelicalism today is you see really uh, almost, almost a despising of 
uh, a trained ministry, a despising of the teaching office of the church. Uh, the pastor, uh, you know, he wants to wear skinny jeans and be dr sipping a latte and just, you know, uh, I, I, I'm just one of the people. Well, he is just one of the people, mm. but he is to be Christ's spokesman when he is standing and teaching. He's not speaking. Christ is speaking in and through him. So the ordinary means that are being talked about here are, are the means of grace whereby God is pleased to bestow Christ and all his benefits upon his people, especially the preaching of the gospel, the sacraments, and prayer. And there is a place for that, that we need the church. We've got so many people who profess to believe in Jesus but see no place for the visible church in their life. They see no role for church membership. Uh, they think, I, I could just watch a, a, a pastor on YouTube and it's just as good as, as being there. It's not. And praise God that we've got good teaching, podcasts, YouTube, sermon audio, blogs. You know, We've got an abundance of access, but we still need to be sitting under the preaching of the word as an accountable member of the visible church, receiving instruction and care from pastors and elders that God has gifted, called, and ordained to that purpose. And uh, so, you know, there are ditches on both sides of the road. Uh, we don't want to be elitist in our thinking about the Word of God. Neither do we want to discard the place of these instruments that God has prepared and provided for the edification of His people. Right, yeah, yeah. Actually, I wanted to read, and just to kind of add to that, what uh, what uh, Chad Van Dixhorn wrote. Yes. And in, in, in his book, just really quick, I'll, I'll just add on to this. It says this, Truly, not only the learned, but the unlearned can understand these things, and we might add, explain them to others. Mm -hmm. Our responsibility is to use the Word of God properly, reading it carefully and listening to it prayerfully. And man, I, I, that, 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 that part right there was, I just wish I would have known that when I was younger. <laughs> um, that is to say, we can expect the Holy Spirit's blessing, especially if we do not neglect the ordinary means by which he teaches his people. For, uh, for the Spirit delights in using the preaching of the word, the emblems of the gospel provided in baptism and the Lord's Supper, mm -hmm. and his own answers to prayer to help us understand scripture. And uh, man, I mean... Oh man, I, I just, I just, th that's something I, 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 cause I remember when I was younger, I was actually one of those, uh, one of the many who would uh, challenge church membership and, sure. and, you know, I, I, I'm embarrassed now to, to even bring up the arguments I would bring up back then, but I actually had, I had a book that I, I found a book online um, about like 200 pages and it, it's, I, I just thought it was the best thing ever. You know, it, it went over how, how we have church wrong a day and everything. And, mm -hmm. And then I noticed that was around the time I told you about earlier, you know, a, a few of us kind of were on that line of reasoning when it comes to, to, to church. And, um, and although we had theology books and debates and everything, um, spiritually, man, we were struggling, you know, and, and our, our spirits were suffering. So, so it's important to have that, that constant, um, I guess, that, that urgency to, to, to have the, the ordinary means to, to hear the gospel and That's right. to be encouraged by the spirit. So, yeah, man. I mean, that's huge. So I, I, uh, I lost my spot here, but if you want to go ahead. No, it's, it's a pervasive problem. I don't think you need to feel embarrassed, uh, you know, ha having been there because, uh, you know, one of the things that we cover in our membership class when people are desiring to become members of our church is the question, is church membership biblical? Because right. so many people come and they yeah. say, you know, maybe I'm willing to join, but I don't really need to join. And I'm not yeah. even sure if, if, you know, this is, this is taught in the, the word of God. We 
want to show people why we believe it's not only right to do, it's necessary. It's important. You yes. need to be a member of a church. You can't be held accountable in uh, proper ways uh, just at a distance, you know, just yeah. receiving teaching online. You need the love and care of your pastor, your elders, your brothers and sisters in the church. You need the blessing of corporate worship and, uh, and obviously the sacraments uh, and, and the corporate prayers of the saints. So right, right, yeah, right. amen to that yeah. quote. Uh, Brother uh, Van Dixhorn's yeah. uh, book is an excellent resource. It is, it is. And it, it, it does, and I guess it does have the element of like devotion in it too, you know. There's just so much, even in the confessions too, uh, and I'll get to it in the last, um, in this next section that we're going to cover, that very last part, it talks about worship and having hope. Yes. Like, things like that, I mean, you got to meditate on, you know. And but, Okay, so that, that was section seven. And uh, I thank you for that. I think we're doing good on time. So um, um, let's go to section eight. And okay. the part that I kind of want, I want to ask you, uh, it's, it's probably something that, that, that we get challenged on often, but it, it has to do with uh, the original writings being inspired. And what we have are just copies. Sure. And, aren't really in, and, the, and they're not really inspired, you know, or God breathed. Um, so right here it says, uh, you know, the, the, old, the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek. Um, which at the time of the writing, it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular uh, care and providence kept pure in all ages. So there, there are some Christians, unfortunately, who say that scripture isn't inspired. Like we don't really, ha we don't really know the, what was in the original writings. So, so we can't really say that scripture is inspired. And um, what's your response to that usually? Sure. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one thing I would want to I would want us to to uh, push back on the idea that the copies that we have of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts of Scripture are not inspired. Of course, they are inspired. We recognize that these are not the original uh, copies that the biblical authors made. They are copies of the autographs. Um, however, in the same way that I would say this English translation of the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I realize there could be a misprint in it. I realize there could be all kinds of mistakes in a copy of a copy. And yet, insofar as it correctly communicates the Word of God, it is the inspired Word of God. And the fact that it's a copy doesn't change its nature. So that's, that's one uh, thing that I would want to say. But the more basic question is, how can we be sure that the copies that we have of the originals uh, are faithful to the originals if nobody has seen one of the originals? And I, and I think that there are a number of things that can be said there, but there are three points that I would make and, and do make in conversations about this. First of all, the thing that a lot of people want to talk about, and it's a legitimate point to make, is the bibliographical or empirical reason uh, for confidence in uh, our Bibles today. We have an abundance of manuscripts. We have many copies of the Greek New Testament. We have uh, an impressive number of Hebrew manuscripts, although fewer than uh, the uh, editions of the Greek New Testament. But compared to any other work of ancient literature, far and away, more attestation, more copies, more manuscripts, uh, just a remarkably preserved corpus of literature. And that is not true of other ancient documents. In fact, you think about the works of the Greek poets and philosophers. Many of these were largely lost uh, in the early medieval period and had to be recovered and rediscovered, as it were, in the Renaissance, largely through Arabic copies. <laughs> That's a whole other story. So, I mean, God, God has blessed us with a 
uh, a surplus of bibliographic evidence uh, for those early copies of scripture. And to say we can't be sure that those copies correctly reflect the original, well, when you have hundreds or even thousands of witnesses to those specific texts, um, the, the idea that the original could have been changed, the idea that uh, deliberate errors could have been introduced is just statistically beyond belief. Okay, yes. so that's, that's one point that a lot of people like to make. The second point that not that is not made as often, but I think is very important as well, is the historical reason. And that is that the church has had copies of the Word of God continuously. In, in other words, there has never been a point where the church lost the Bible and had to rediscover it. Uh, even when we talk about the Reformers reading the Bible for the first time in the original languages, it's not because the, the manuscripts weren't there. It's simply because People like Luther had never read it in Greek and Hebrew. They had only interacted with it in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, the, the Word of God is preserved. It's kept pure in all ages, the uh, Article 8 says. And so there is this continuous tradition, this continuous witness uh, that the, the same Bible that was being read in the fourth century of the church is being read in churches today in the 21st century. And I think that that is not adequately emphasized in this conversation frequently, that we are not just receiving the Bible as it were, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a, a direct transit from the first century to the 21st, but we're receiving it through this continuous practice, this continuous tradition, uh, where it's being handed down to us by our fathers and grandfathers in the faith. And then, of course, the third reason you've already covered on your podcast, but it's relevant here, and that is that Scripture is self-authenticating. This is what we could call the theological reason. And we want to be careful here that we don't express this in a way that sounds to some people like Mormonism. Uh, we're not talking about a burning in the bosom or some kind of a better felt than told experience, but we are saying that the regenerate person, the person who has been born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit testifies to that person that the, the Bible is indeed the Word of God. There is a conviction, there is a confidence, there is a sufficient clarity with regard to that, that as Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. And so there, there is something about reading the Bible as a believer in Jesus that is categorically different than reading the Bible as an unbeliever and simply approaching it as a, a historical or academic artifact. Uh, so those are the three things that I would emphasize, the bibliographical, the historical, and the theological reasons that we can have confidence that when you open a copy of the Bible today in a modern language version, you are reading the inspired Word of God faithfully preserved and translated from uh, the original documents. Right. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to delete my last episode and just get that chunk. <laughs> no, please don't no, no. do that. <laughs> no, no, but that, that's really You've good. You've been doing great work, brother. <laughs> Thanks, man. But no, that, that, um, that last point that you made, I think it's really good because like anyone listening to that, any, anyone listening to this might think like, well, that won't convince a non-believer, mm -hmm. you know, but, but that's kind of the point though. You know, the point is right. that the Holy Spirit works in, in, in someone right. and, and, and that person now recognizes the voice of God. Yes. You know, and so, yes. so to, to me that that's a huge point too. Yeah. I, I, yes. love, I love that point. So Praise that's God. great. Um, so 
one final thing I want to cover, um, and uh, that's going to be the very last part of that of that article, Article Eight. Let me go to it really quick. It says this. Um, uh, let me see. Where should I start? You know, it, it, old English to me is just so hard to read sometimes. <laughs> All right, so I'll, I'll just start right here. It says, uh, therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Mm. So, so there's a, there's, I, I guess there's a few things I want to talk about that. So for one is um, that, that it, it's implying that there's a, a way of worship that's not acceptable mm-hmm. and is a way that that is acceptable. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, can, can you speak a little bit of, about that, about how the word of God being translated to, 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 to different languages, how people worship God the right way. Yeah, yeah. Worship is not intuitive, even though it is natural to the human person. So human beings are naturally worshipers, but we don't know how to properly worship unless God teaches us, unless he speaks to us and reveals himself to us. And he does that through the word of God. So what part of what's going on here is uh, the word is to be translated into the common languages of the nations so that people understand how to acceptably, acceptably worship God. Yeah. So that it's not every man doing what is right in his own eyes, yeah. but rather we're able to worship in spirit and in truth as yes. God, as God desires. Awesome. Yeah. And then lastly, it says, uh, through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's interesting that, that the, that the Westminster divines, that they saw this as, as a way to evangelize and for mm-hmm. people to have hope in Christ, you yes. know, people of all nations, you know, and, and I, I just think it's very interesting that um, it's not really a point to be made, but really just to kind of emphasize it, that, that they ended that with may have hope. Yes. Uh, the, the, Westminster, the Westminster divines, they weren't the uh, frozen it's called the chosen frozen or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Where they, frozen where they, chosen. Where, right. they didn't get, where they didn't care about evangelism. Our confession yeah. implies that heavily that, that we want the word of God to be translated in all languages. Yes. We want people to have hope. Yes. You know, and so I don't know if you have any comments about that. Just any closer. No, amen. I mean, I would just want to say amen to everything that you're saying. That the, the Word of God is for the people of God, and the Bible is very clear that the people of God are drawn out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and, and uh, people group, and that it is not, a, a, you know, the property of a particular ethnicity. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not a tool for... Um, uh, bringing one human culture to bear on another human culture. In fact, what it's doing is it's, is it's bringing human beings out of a sinful, corrupt and fallen culture uh, to recognize their true citizenship and participation in the kingdom of God. And, and yeah, the the, the point that I would want to finish on there um, is, is to say that those closing lines of article eight indicate that the word of God always lead us to worship. The word of God, properly read, properly taught, properly understood, always leads us to worship. If you can read your Bible and not be moved to praise and thank God, you're doing it wrong. Right, right. So it moves us to worship, and it brings us to hope. And again, you, you shared your experience earlier, brother, of, of having friends and brothers uh, where you had a kinship around Bible study and theology and doctrine, but somehow it didn't penetrate the heart. And, and I know how heartbreaking that is. But again, this is not just an academic subject. This is not an intellectual pursuit alone. It involves the intellect. It involves academic rigor. But ultimately, 
The word of God leads us to worship the God who breathed this word upon the page and to fill our hearts with his love and with hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's always be committed to having our Bible study, our doctrinal study, our teaching ministry uh, aimed uh, in that direction.